you know, government is a lot of things. At worst, it binds and controls a society, imposing rule that restricts free expression and movement. At best, it empowers a great society to do great things. It, it lifts all its constituents and provides a playing field for all members to play with equal chance of success. One thing is for sure, though, government in a great society like that of the United States of America is layered and complex to the point where we don't always understand who is doing what and for what reason. Now, when I was a kid in school, we still had civics class, not history or even something like problems in American democracy, which I took later on in high school, but basic civics classes that taught you what the different parts of our government were for and what role they played in your day-to-day -day life. I remember having a mock trial in eighth grade, all the way through jury selection, and it prepared me for when that summons showed up for the first time by making the process familiar and less intimidating. So for today's podcast, I have the privilege of talking with an elected official from the County of Los Angeles who runs a department that all of us who live here come into contact with, yet probably don't fully understand the scope of what they do for us. Since this department lives in every county and every state across the union, there's a good chance you came across them as well. I'm an info nerd, right? And learning about all kinds of stuff like how the individual departments in our county government work is really one of my biggest relief valves. And when my kids refer to me as useless knowledge man, I'm quick to point out that it's only useless till you need it. Jeff Prang was elected in 2014 as the 27th Assessor for the County of Los Angeles and re-elected again in 2018. Raised in Warren, Michigan, Assessor Prang is a graduate of Michigan State University. After graduation, Mr. Prang relocated to California, where he served nearly 18 years as a council member for the city of West Hollywood, including four terms as mayor, among many other positions in his public sector career. Assessor Prang is a State Board of Equalization licensed appraiser and administers the largest office of its kind in the nation, with 1,300 employees that provide the foundation for a property tax system that generates over $17 billion annually. My guest today is Jeff Prang. Jeff, how, how does one address the uh, county assessor? Is it the Honorable Jeff Prang? You so know, like it's... So it's an interesting question. I've actually thought about that from time to time. So whenever you're dealing with elected officials, whether it is a school board member, a member of the legislature or Congress, if you're like writing a letter or if you're introducing them, they will generally say, you know, like the Honorable Eric Garcetti, mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Um, some people now will say, we're, I mean, you know, we're glad to be joined today by Honorable Garcetti, which is inappropriate. It's not a title. It's kind of a... Yeah. Uh, um, it's kind of a, a courtesy that's extended. Um, I usually I just like to have people call me Jeff. Cool. Well, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule uh, to talk with me for a little bit today. Can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? So um, I am the Los Angeles County Assessor, um, a job that virtually nobody really understands. Everybody thinks <laughs> they know what I do, and most of them are wrong. 
So um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the job. The job of county assessor is one of three countywide elective offices. Um, the other two are much, much more uh, known than, uh, than mine, and that's the sheriff and the district attorney. But the county has three elected officials, the assessor, the okay. DA, and the sheriff. Um, I am responsible um, for the valuation of all taxable property in the county. And taxable property includes something we all think of naturally, and that's land and buildings. Uh, it also right. includes um, what we call business personal property, which might mean furniture, equipment, and machinery. And okay. our job is to establish the fair market value of that property under the laws established by Prop 13. Okay. And um, our, I'm, I'm responsible for um, producing what's called the assessment role. And the assessment role is really just a fancy way of referring to the inventory of all property in the county, which is on the uh, on the tax rolls. That's really interesting. Uh, as a technology manager for many years, I've always been involved in budgeting and purchasing equipment and making sure that things are properly re you know written off the books when they've reached their end of life and that kind of thing. And I never realized that it was your office that sets the tax valuation of those kind of assets. So it's uh, every year the businesses that you work for would probably get from us a business property statement where they would uh, uh, declare the value, the depreciation, and pay uh, a property tax on that, which is 1%, just like it is on, uh, on real property, land and land okay. buildings. And some of the things that, in addition to business equipment that fall under that category, also include aircraft, both commercial aircraft, like planes at, uh, at uh, LAX, uh, general aviation yeah. aircraft, boats, motorhomes uh, of a certain age, and uh, one of the more interesting ones, we even um, assess racehorses. Uh -huh. That's 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 interesting, yeah. So one of the big misconceptions that people have about my office is that people always ask me if I have a finance degree um, to be the assessor, but we're not a finance office. That's not what we do. We are essentially, our core function is real estate appraisal. So, um, okay. my so just a few stats about my office. I run the largest local property assessment agency in the United States. We've got okay. about 1,300 employees in six different offices. We're responsible for establishing the value for two and a half million real property parcels and about 350,000 business assessments annually, which last year were valued at $1.7 trillion. Wow. That's, the, that's the assessed value. The market value is very much higher. So about half of our employer employees are real estate appraisers. And um, okay. we, we train them to, to be an appraiser. You have to have a, a bachelor's degree. We do all the training in-house. It's uh, about a year a year to two-year program. Start, people start okay. off uh, valuing you know, track homes, re residential homes, and graduate up over the years into doing complex commercial properties like the new SoFi Stadium, which is uh, an oil refining, yeah. some really complex pieces of property. Sure. Was this what you thought you would be doing when you uh, started out and went on to college? It is not. Um, it was nowhere on my, my radar screen, but I did have um, fairly early in my career in government and politics exposure to this office. Back in 1990, okay. um, my uh, mid to late 20s, I, uh, I, I met a guy who was running to be the county assessor. And okay. uh, I, his name was Kenneth P. Hahn, no relationship to the supervisor of Kenneth. Kenny Han, uh, although they okay. have the same name, and I, I, I helped him on his campaign, and uh, but a year or two later, after he got elected, he offered me a job as staff assistant in the assessor's office. So after I left his service, he put me on the uh, 
Assessors Community Advisory Board. Um, okay. And almost 30 years later, I ended up back in the office and uh, in a position to run for assessor in 2014. Okay. What was it always your um, was it always your goal to be in politics when you were uh, coming up? It it has since I was very young. I was always fascinated with the government and politics. I always knew that I wanted to work in government of uh, at one level or another. And uh, okay. I, uh, you know, when I was at, I, I, I'm from Michigan, and I attended Michigan State University, which is right next to the Capitol. And while I was there, I did okay. an internship at the Capitol. Um, I even ran for city council in my hometown of Warren, Michigan. I think I was maybe 19 or 20 years old. I got clobbered. Yeah. Um, didn't know what I was doing, but by the time I was done, I actually uh, um, was kind of a weathered vet- veteran by that point and uh, uh, learned a lot in uh, running that losing campaign. But when I came to California in the late 80s, I, uh, I, I got involved in campaigns and politics and uh, was hired to work on the staff of uh, a number of elected officials, including not only Assessor Kenny Hahn, but I worked for uh, Los Angeles Council Member Ruth Galanter for a number of years. Um, okay. And then prior to being assessor, I was I served for almost 18 years as the city council member in West Hollywood, including four terms as mayor. Oh, so that must have been an interesting set of challenges as well uh, as the executive of the city. West Hollywood is obviously, it's a pr- pretty notable community. Um, city council jobs are really the, the, the boots on the ground level of, uh, of government that people relate to. It's where, where most yeah. people interact with government, you know, roads and parks and libraries are all city city business. And West Hollywood, it's a mo- moderate-sized city, about 35,000 people, um, but it has yeah. a, it, West Hollywood has a huge international um, presence you know, with a host of a number of the Os- Oscar awards and uh, uh, right. very engaged electorate. Um, and even right. though now as assessor, I represent LA County, 4,500 square miles, 11 million people. But uh, I think there's a whole lot more glamour being the mayor of West Hollywood than <laughs> being the county property tax assessor. Certainly in the day-to-day contact with your constituents, I'm sure. Though though now, technically, we're, they're all your constituents as well, just in a different way. It, but most people just don't know what we um, what we do. When I was on the city council, you know, I, I used to joke, I kept office hours when I went to Ralph's or Pavilions because uh, people would see you and they recognize you and they'd yeah. talk about the issues on the street, the neighborhood, whatever it was. It was hard to get uh, to, to be out in public without having somebody come up and ask you questions or offer uh, some constructive criticism about the way things run. But most people are not really aware of what the assessor does. Probably the most important confusion that people have is people think that I do taxes. They, in fact, they modify my title. They call, they all the time call me the tax assessor. And to the best of my knowledge, that is a non-existent title in the United States. I have not been able to find a jurisdiction where they have a position called tax assessor. And it's in California, okay. incorrect, because we have an assessor who assesses right. the value of property. And then we have a totally different department headed by a different um, person called the treasurer tax collector. And I always joke, I said, there's okay. another guy who collects taxes. He's got a very intuitive title. He's called the tax collector. Um, <laughs> he's easy to differentiate between uh, that department and ours. We are related. Um, if, if I can, just to give you a, a, a yeah, quick, please. Uh, explanation of how it works. So if you buy a house, you record a deed with the registrar recorder. Or if you do mm-hmm. new construction, like adding a second floor to your home, you get a permit um, from the city. Well, the city sends right. us the permits, the registrar recorder sends us the deeds, and those become work orders for us. And we then send out an appraiser to determine the value, which we then enroll on the assessment roll. 
and that's where our work okay. is. Uh, that information is turned over to another department that people don't know about called the auditor controller. They're the ones that assign all the tax rates. So they're the ones okay. that what you're going to pay. And then they turn that data over to the treasurer tax collector who mails bills and collects the payments. So there's a multitude of departments that are involved. I'm the only one of those departments that is headed by an elected official. And so most people are more aware of my department than the others. And I'm held essentially accountable for all the responsibilities right. there in somebody else's department. But we do try right. to we do try to handle them, even if they're not technically our uh, our department's responsibility. The price of fame. Does your department feed up into any other part of the state government uh, in any way at all? So, yes, um, sort of. So um, you know, the property taxes that are generated from our assessments are all local funds. They go to schools, cities, special districts. Um, the, right. California, okay. the California State Board of Equalization, they have a um, they don't supervise us, but they have a uh, an oversight responsibility over all 58 county assessors. They do regular surveys to make sure that our policies and practices are in compliance with state laws and guidelines. Uh, They establish standardization of uh, forms and of the implementation of various state statutes so that to ensure that all assessors are doing things the same way. So you're not going to be getting conflicting information from county to county. And, And the 58 county assessors actually all work very, very closely together. We have four or five um, significant significant meetings um, annually that focus on standardization in terms of policy and practice, um, education to ensure our people are getting the right type of information to do, to do their jobs, and to uh, advocate for laws that help us to do our jobs more effectively. That's That's really interesting. So ultimately, what prepared you for this role was actually working in the office. So... so I, there are three significant parts of my career that I think helped prepare me. One was actually yeah. being in the office and understanding what the office does, what its functions are, what the kind of the value, the outward facing value is to the public. Um, because okay. it's an elective office, uh, the board of supervisors is responsible for approving my budget, having uh, okay. those many years as a city council member in West Hollywood, understanding the dynamics of how to deal with other elected officials who have different levels of, uh, of responsibilities was important to ensure that I could uh, you know, knew how to navigate those waters to be as effective as possible. The one thing I didn't okay. mention previously in my career, I spent three and a half years as an assistant city manager where I had significant uh, administrative responsibilities over budgetary and programmatic um, uh, uh, matters. And the assessor is not a policymaker, it's, a, it's an elected administrator. And those that administrative okay. experience was really uh, some of the most valuable um, experience I had in being prepared for this job. Okay. How often do you have to stand for election? Every every four years. Um, okay. In, there are no term limits, which is uh, okay. means I, I can stay as long as I think I can still be valuable, as long as the people will keep me. Okay, that's cool. How did this particular role become a, um, do you know, how did, how did this particular role become an elected position so, versus an appointed? So the California Constitution, which was written more than 100 years ago, provides that the district attorney, the sheriff, and the assessor all need to be elected. I don't know what was going okay. on at that point, um, but there are there's been discussion about whether any or all three of these positions should be uh, appointed. I think there's good arguments on both sides. I can say that there is one thing about this job 
where I think being elected is uh, is pretty important. I was with this office yeah. as a staff assistant from in 1992, 1993. And that was the first yeah. time post Prop 13 that um, the real estate market crashed and property values went down. Now, okay. under Proposition 13, which is what guides property va- assessment and taxes in California, um, if the market value of property falls below its assessed value, which is more or less what yeah. you pay for it, you are entitled to pay taxes on the lower of the two. So, for example, if you pay a million dollars for your house, um, the market crashes, it's now only worth $500,000. I am constitutionally obligated to lower the assessed value of property from a million to a half a million, which would save you $5,000 a year on your property taxes. Okay. So, obviously, if I were to do that, that's going to negatively, negatively impact local government revenues. And I was in this office in 1992 and 1993. I was at a much lower level position, obviously. But I remember the anxiety from the assessor, Kenny Hahn at that time, and his senior managers, getting a lot of pressure from the board of supervisors and from the chief administrative office not to lower those property values, or at least not to lower them that much. Uh, The county was not nearly as judicious with its money back in those days. And uh, those reductions would have had severe impacts on public services. And if the assessor had been appointed, they could have ordered them to... uh, uh, artificially inflate those values, which would have been unfair to property owners. It would have been, it would have been against the law right. as well. But um, it's, it's easier to be in, it's easier to be independent when you're elected by the people instead of being appointed by a, an executive. I'm not the tax collector. I'm not responsible for revenues. I am not a revenue agency per se. Right. Um, I am, and I am supposed to officially be agnostic when it comes to the property value. I don't care whether your value goes up or down. My duty is to enroll the fair and accurate value. You sh- that value will determine that you're paying the, the right amount of taxes. If we manipulate right. that, you're going to pay too much or too little. So when the folks upstairs um, in, this, in this building where we, where we work, if they want to put pressure on uh, an appointed official uh, to, uh, to support their revenues, that would require an appointed official to treat people unfairly. And I think that independence uh, for the assessor is still critical. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Um, You talked about, you had, I think you said uh, 1,500 employees in total in Um, the assessor's office? Roughly between 13 and 1,400, I believe. Okay. Um, About half, I think I've mentioned about half of those, but 700, 750 are appraisers. We have uh, 100 IT professionals. We have obviously administrative people who do budget and, and HR, and uh, we have a number of other administrative right. positions that deal with other programs that we are we're responsible for. In fact, okay. one of the things that's, uh, uh, speaking of employees, one of the things I'm really excited about, we just this week launched uh, programs with a couple of local community colleges that's going to create a pipeline from the community colleges into LA County government jobs. And you know, government oh, jobs, excellent. they've got good, good pay, really good benefits and retirement. So we have a class right now over at West LA College of appraiser trainees where they're learning a lot of the techniques of real estate appraisal. We have a brand new position we call appraiser assistant and they're over at uh, Rio Hondo College um, learning the uh, basic skills to uh, come in as an appraiser assistant, which will then create a pathway for them to matriculate up to a full appraiser. And if you're an appraiser, you can nice. go all the way up to the uh, uh, senior 
uh, ranks in the department. So um, anybody can enroll in these college college programs. Um, we can't guarantee you a job when you're done, but if you uh, if you if you get complete if you finish it and you pass and can be certified by the Board of Equalization, um, you have a good chance of getting a job in LA County or any of the other 58 counties in California that hire those positions. That's very cool. That's excellent. What was it? Um, what was it like for you when COVID came down and you had to shut down things? How did that? How did that mess with your life? I know it messed with a lot of us getting sent home uh, and having to work from home. How did it change your business? Well, the sending people home, you know, we had never done anything like that before. It was really difficult to, right. uh, even, though, even though we did it, um, nobody really quite knew how or what it meant or how long it was going to be or uh, what was going to be in, involved. Um, and there was a bit of an adjustment. A lot of our employees, particularly the appraisers, when they're at the office, you know, we, uh, we give them rather robust equipment. Most of them have extra large um, computer screens. They're double screens. So they can look at maps yeah. and, and, and drawings. Um, we didn't we didn't have equipment to send home with these uh, these employees, so they may be relying mm-hmm. on a on a small laptop. So moving them from home and uh, ensuring that they had the equipment they needed to do their job was uh, uh, was difficult. How to deal with public service you know, all the people calling or emailing, and um, you know, obviously you don't have a desktop phone at, at home, and uh, we have to figure out right. how are we going to deal with people's personal devices. Um, yeah. But we. It, it did take a few weeks. Uh, I think the employees did like the safety and, and actually the convenience of being at home. Um, yeah. And we actually were able to get uh, up and running and uh, our production uh, was able to return to some sense of uh, normalcy in most uh, in most categories. Okay. Do you ultimately have plans to pull everybody back into the office? Are you going to, are you caught in that position where you're trying to find the the middle ground where Maybe people work three days in the office, two days at home. How does that apply to a government? So in L.A. County, the uh, the folks that establish policy for you know, county employees are the board of supervisors and the chief executive office. And so we okay. are, we participate with the 33 other county departments in talking about our needs, priorities, and, and concerns. I, there was some sense they're going to try to begin reopening county buildings uh, October 1st, that is not, I don't know if that's, that date is uh, uh, still with us, but I think maybe October or November, there might be some yeah. soft openings um, with some buildings. Uh, it is likely that we are going to maintain this modified work schedule where some employees will, tell, will uh, telework for yeah. uh, the foreseeable future. Um, we don't see, I don't know what, you, what your thoughts are, but I'm not seeing uh a quick end to COVID. It's possible we could have another surge going into the uh, into the winter months. So we're still going to need to keep people separated. Yeah. But uh, but the county did order that all employees have to be vaccinated or they have to meet fairly rigorous standard of testing and the uh, well, there's exemptions for medical exemptions and religious exemptions. I think uh, those are being hotly debated right now about where the where the standard will be. Uh, we are anticipating okay. that we will probably lose some employees uh, who are not going to meet one of the uh, exemption qualifications and who are, but they were pretty insistent that they're not going to get vaccinated. Hmm. I expected this last surge to come at the end of the summer, mm-hmm. not before the summer. I was kind of surprised at how big the effect um, that Delta was on on the the country in general, but even here in LA, um, I'm disappointed that 
we don't have a higher vaccination rate than we do, but at the same time, at least people are starting to get better at it. And the numbers seem like they're moving in the right direction. So hopefully, while we're probably going to see a surge in the winter, at least it won't be as bad as certainly nothing could possibly be as bad as it was last winter. That was the most darkest moment of my life watching it happen. It was it was pretty uh, it was pretty demoralizing. And I, I think back now with the Delta variant, I remember in the very early months in March and April of last year, when they were beginning the uh, public education about the need to wear masks, and some mm-hmm. some from the CDC said, right now with this type of virus, we're really dealing with one or two variants. They said the longer this lasts, those variants are going to mutate. Yeah. They will mutate to a more severe degree. So wear your masks now, so we can stop the variants at these uh, at these two. But now we've got now I'm even hearing that there's another um, another variant that's uh, equally as uh, uh, virulent as uh, as the Delta. Yeah. Um, we have to we have to get it under control as quickly as we can because uh, otherwise, at some point, it may affect the effectiveness of the vaccines. That would be terrible. Really, really terrible. Yeah, I've had many conversations with people about why the vaccines happened as quickly as they did, because being someone from technology and engineering, supercomputing capacity is cheap nowadays. Having having the human genome already mapped, having uh, supercomputer capacity available relatively inexpensively, it didn't surprise me or worry me that they were able to find the virus quickly and then immediately get on attacking it. But there are so many folks that just didn't understand that we've hit a moment in history where human knowledge and technology might have actually merged at the right place to get us to where we needed to be. Well, the other thing that I, I found to be very compelling is that the uh, the drug manufacturing industry um, didn't sit down at the table and said, let's come up with uh, with some vaccines and invent a vaccine with the on- onset of, of COVID. They had uh, just a myriad of platforms that were already looking at a variety of different coronaviruses. There, you know, there's a, there's mm, a true. foundational elements of coronavirus that can go one of a, an endless possibility of, uh, of, of directions. So for example, yeah. the, the, J, the J&J um, shot was built on uh, the, the format that they use for other types of cold and flu vaccinations. So they were probably already uh, 50% plus or minus um, uh, yeah. along the way in the development of a vaccine. They just needed to uh, give it the direction to address this specific uh, uh, virus. It was they have, a, yeah. they have a lot of irons in the fire. They just need to pull one out yeah. and, and hammer to the, to yeah. the way that they uh, want, to, want to look in the end. Yeah, best of times and worst of times, right? We had We had a moment in history where we were close and we were on our way. And at the same time, we still had to deal with, with it. Right. In the, in the time you've been in the office, how how long have you, uh, how long have you served as the assessor now? So I was elected in uh, December or November of 2014 and reelected in in 2018. So I'm in year seven. And um, um, as I said, there's no term limit. So I am planning to run for reelection next June. Um, Okay. We set out a we we set out a, a number of uh, very aggressive uh, uh, initiatives to hopefully make the department work better and function better for the public. One of the things I wanted to, to highlight that uh, I think is maybe interesting for your for your listeners 
deals with technology. Yeah. Um, so when I was when I was you're a tech guy, so you probably appreciate this. But when I was elected, I inherited what essentially was a 1970s era mainframe green screen DOS based <laughs> technology platform. Um, we okay. you know, we had uh, to, to get information about property and, uh, and our work together, access one of a half a dozen different flickering green screen databases that weren't very robust. You had to be trained on how to read um, all that language. The two and a half million property parcels in LA County were all still associated with a paper file. Um, so getting okay. even basic information um, uh, you know, could take uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of time, hours, in some cases, even days. And you had a, you had to know where your what district office of mine where your physical property file was uh, was housed and so so, so so the computer was an index to a whole bunch of files sitting out in in storage lockers somewhere for access. So for part of our work, yes, that was was the case. So we actually launched a very aggressive technology replacement program. We looked at all the existing technology to see what was available uh, off the shelf. And we finally elected okay. to, re- to build our system from scratch. We were, we've got a, a, a program with Oracle. It's a five-phase program. We're at the end of phase four. Should be done in about okay. a year. Um, we've, uh, uh, we'll be off the mainframe, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, but we've already been able to uh, add tremendous amount of functionality. If you look at our website, if you look at our property uh, portal, all this information, which used to be hard to get, is now all available at the... Uh, tips of your fingers, but just by logging into our website, we digitized all those property files. So now any employee can access those files from any, uh, uh, from any computer. I see. No longer have to rely on paper files. Um, right. It's, it's actually, we've been able to quantify the effectiveness of this because emails and phone calls into our office have somewhat leveled off, which means what that's telling us is that people are getting answers to their own questions without having to call somebody. Right. That's very cool. And we, uh, we focused on uh, putting as much data that we have that's available to the public online so that uh, increases transparency and usability. And there's a, a, another element that maybe it's too much in the weeds, but the way that we're doing it is pretty novel for government. The way government buys things, um, whether it be cities or schools or the state, um, they call it a design, bid, build model. You kind of figure out what you need. You, uh, you send out a request for a proposal and hire the cheapest bidder, then they build it, then they come and plug it in and see if it works. When it comes to technology, it never works. And so we actually used a fairly novel uh, approach. It's not novel in private industry. It is a novel in government, but we're using what's called an agile approach to development. We're building it in little small Mm -hmm. pieces, and we don't move on from piece one to piece two until that piece checks out. It works the way we intend, intend to. We took some of our people out of production and we have them on the design team. So end users are helping design the system to make sure yep. it works the way our employees um, use it. And what I really, what really was revealing about this, which I think uh, is interesting, is that when you look at other government agencies where people get mm-hmm. really frustrated with the service that they receive, think of recently the uh, uh, state unemployment department or the Department yep. of Motor Vehicles. Uh, that are inefficient. It takes forever to get, you know, there's a lot of things you think you could do online that you can't. It's just really frustrating yeah. people. And though, but I think at the root of that is those two, two agencies, they still are using one of these old 1970s, 1980s mainframes. Um, the, the Veterans Fairs at the uh, federal government, they're still uh, largely a paper-based uh, mainframe technology system. 
and these create in a 2021 economy, they create huge public service um, impediments um, for, the, sure. for, for the public. But they're also fabulously expensive. What's the blueprint for being able to get a system plan like this put together and funded, right? Because I imagine, you know, these very large agencies have, they, they have big demands. So how do they get the money to do it? Um, well, for, for like the... Uh, EDD and for Department of Motor Vehicles, that would, the, the legislature would have to allocate money in the uh, the budget. Um, the project okay. that we're building here in the assessor's office is going to be close to a hundred million dollar project over five okay. uh, over over five years. Um, the money probably would have been very difficult to get, um, but there are some conditions in the assessor's office uh, seven years ago that made it uh, easier to get the board of supervisors to uh, to. Uh, to give us the, the authority to spend the money on okay. this, uh, this overhaul, uh, but when you when you think about replacing the, uh, the the technology system for the Department of Motor Vehicles, you could be talking about a couple hundred million dollars. Oh. And yeah. as you know, politicians um, would rather spend that money on a park, something they could see and put their name on, as opposed to right. a, a technology platform that uh, they may be able, never be able to take credit for. However, yeah. um, if, if I were a legislator, I think I'd be very motivated to. Uh, want people to wait in line, shorter lines at the DMV. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I could uh, give their, make their lives better through greater efficiency, that would definitely be the way to go. But I, I get it, right? It's about, sometimes it's about how it looks, not how it feels. <laughs> but so I, I do, I do believe that's, um, that's fundamental to a lot of problems that we're having with a lot of big government agencies, just their, their technological ability to respond to the demands, the service demands, just don't exist with their uh, with their technology systems. Yeah, and and you know it's it's interesting when you talk about having used an, an agile approach to development of the project. Um, the beauty of agile is you fail quickly so that you could correct and move on. Where in the more traditional waterfall methods of doing project management, you have to develop something, get it all the way through to the end, only to find out it didn't work. And um, the Agile is much better to get you there faster, and it winds up being cheaper in the long run. But it's but it can be challenging to implement it from it experience. Little, it, it may take a little bit more time because you're fixing things as they come up, but it also means mm-hmm. you're uh, you're not fixing them at the uh, at the end. And uh, yeah. it reminds me, uh, you may recall back in the uh, the early 1980s when the American car companies were an all time low in terms of their quality. And Japanese cars were considered the, uh, the yep. gold standard, and they uh, um, they compared and contrasted the uh, the different assembly line models. And American cars, they you know, for every thousand cars that comes off the end of the assembly line, they had to fix a hundred yeah. of them. Japanese only had to have fixed one or two of them because um, on the Japanese automotive assembly line, any employee of any rank had the authority to shut down the line. To fix yep. the problems, to ensure that the cars coming off at the other end were of uh, the quality yeah. that they expected. Um, the American line may be faster, but you get more you know, garbage, garbage in, garbage out. Yep, yep. I worked for a company uh, back in the '80s, as a matter of fact, that was very into total quality awareness and the Deming's uh, techniques for how to manage production, which is, ironically enough, came out of economists in the United States but landed in Japan after World War II when the Japanese economy was destroyed and needed to kind of be built from scratch. They adopted these new ideas, and that's what got them so far ahead of us. And then we just ran to catch up um, with a lot of that kind of thing. Cool. Including on that point, I think that's what we're kind of seeing with the different uh, 
a development approach, agile versus waterfall in terms of, uh, of technology, at least in, for government applications. Yeah. I, I love the idea of seeing incremental progress on something and failing early so that you can correct quickly and not lose, you know, not spend three years doing something and right. then find out at the end that you, you don't have the right requirements and everything is bad. That's the worst. Our project did get slowed down a bit because of a hiring freeze and due to COVID, um, we didn't have the resources. But in general, um, I, I always tell anybody who asks is that our technology project, if this was a road construction project, I would say we are uh, on time and on budget, which is uh, kind of a rarity in government, it seems. Yeah. How, how do you feel about the next six months? They feel good? They feel you don't know yet? The surgence of the Delta variant created uh, uh, was a bit of a surprise. Everybody thought things were returning to a, some sense of nor nor normality. But now we know that there are different variants that could come up that could throw a wrench into the, the machinery. Um, however, mm -hmm. we are, things are opening up a bit. We're trying to return to some sense of normalcy in small steps, agile approach, I mm -hmm. guess. And um, yeah. in terms of the core function of our office, discussing the value of property, it appears as though that the real estate market in the county is relatively strong. Um, in fact, this, this year, countywide, property values increased uh, just under 4%. Last year, mm -hmm. uh, they grew just over 6%. So it's not a huge variation. And the last time we had a recession, okay. and we are in a, uh, in a COVID-induced recession, but last time, right. property values went down. And this time, property, residential properties increased roughly 20% year over year due to COVID, oh. um, primarily because of a lack of inventory and historically low mortgage rates. There's a lot of bidding wars during COVID. In fact, uh, just to right. tell you, LA, LA Times talked about how the uh, median sales price of a house is approaching a million dollars. There were a couple of places where there were property was negatively impacted. That business, personal property, yeah. the furniture, equipment, and machinery, that actually had a negative um, growth rate this year. Hotels, which yeah. were all closed, um, yeah. they would probably be negatively impacted. Uh, a lot of restaurants, retail, uh, gyms, where they uh, yeah. would open. But countywide, against all property types, it was a, a positive growth. Along that line, you know, the, I mentioned that the value of all assessed property is $1.7 trillion. That generates yeah. $17 billion in property taxes for schools, cities, and county services. And um, it pays for things like you know, police and public hospitals and yeah. roads and libraries. Yeah. And a lot, yeah. of the, a lot of local government schools were concerned about COVID and the pandemic and its impact on their revenues. So the fact that property values maintained a, a positive growth created a bit of a, um, a floor for uh, to ensure that those vital service public services are still are, are going to be overly impacted by the uh, COVID recession. So I'm curious your opinion on this. How do you see the changeover of people working more remotely and that being possibly the new normal for a lot of businesses affecting the business real estate market in the city? There was a, an assumption at the beginning of COVID as everybody sent their um, employees to, uh, to, to telework that a lot of mm -hmm. office space um, would, that, that they wouldn't return to the office space once they got used to having their employees work from home. Because a lot of them found, right. I've talked to business owners who said they 
they find this uh, uh, environment that's it, it's productive. They didn't lose uh, lose anything, and they don't have to spend thousands of dollars a month on uh, on Class A office space. Um, and we right. expected there to be a lot of vacancies. We thought that was going to have, uh, in turn, a negative uh, impact on property values for a lot of these office buildings. But now that yeah. things are getting better, they are, they do seem, in large part, re- returning to those offices. We're not seeing the, okay. uh, the numbers stay home that we thought was uh, was possible. However, I do believe okay. there is going to be. I think there is a new normal. I think there will be. Uh, a much more robust teleworking um, component uh, throughout the yeah. economy, uh, and particularly in you know where I work in government, those, those were not things that were done, commonly done in government. Governments usually yeah. slow to do things differently, but I I suspect that we're going to continue seeing that uh, with county government yeah. for, uh, for at least for another year, and for, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I know. I know that on my team that I work with, we did a lot of hiring during the last several months, and um, three quarters of my guys aren't even in Southern California. Yeah, we're able to work remotely. Some of them work night shift, kind of thing. They would never come into an office anyway, so we've we've kind of gotten used to that as the way our world's going to work going forward. So, okay, I guess the only other question I've got, and I don't know if you're the right guy to ask it, but I'm just curious about your opinion on it, is how do property values, especially, well, it's throughout the whole state, right? And the way they impact like homelessness and do you see is there anything out on the horizon that adjusts so that there's a tier of property out there that can be made into, you know, more affordable housing to, to take care of people? We're really, on those issues, you're really getting into the issues of housing policy, which is outside my... Uh, okay. Uh, my jurisdiction. If you think of the assessor's okay. office, I, I'm really like the engineer on a train shoveling coal into the engine. My job is to shovel mm-hmm. as much coal in there as possible. Um, the guy steering, uh, driving the train is the one who's responsible for all the de- all, all the decisions. My job is right. to make sure that everything that should be on the tax rolls is on there and that the government is able to derive the property taxes revenues that they're entitled to so they can make the biggest impact on those policy decisions on on homelessness and on um, on affordable affordable housing. Um, okay. yeah, under, under California, you know, uh, under Prop 13, property taxes are one percent of the market value at the time of, of sale or, or or transfer. That's for all right. property for whatever whatever in, income levels are. Um, I've not heard of anybody uh, um, seriously challenging that uh, that approach to, to taxation. Okay. How's your family holding up through all of the uh, all of this? Well, I was uh, married to a band director who had a very difficult time trying to teach band from Zoom for the, the yeah. last year, but uh, uh, but we've yeah. been, uh, been good help and got a lot of home projects taken care of during the uh, good, good, very good. I have a I have a music education student at Cal State Long Beach who also spent the last year and a half. Uh, doing classes and and working from home and it yeah I understand the challenge of being a musician who can't come into contact with other musicians yeah. so it's, it's a group thing yeah absolutely uh, terrific is there anything um you'd like me to share with so the, the audiences I have, a, I have a couple little loose ends that I always like to tell people that when they think about our office um, things that will if you own property that you want to know about so people ask me all the time I said when does my property get reassessed? And the answer is, mm-hmm. it doesn't. 
we determine the value of your property at the time you uh, purchase it. And the most your assessment will ever go up is 2%. That's what the law says, maximum of 2%. But then they'll say, but okay. my property tax bill went up 20%. Then it wasn't, in those cases, it wasn't your property taxes. When you get your property tax bill, it usually has like, what, 15 or 20 different items on there. Yeah. Only one of them was property taxes. The rest of our special assistance for uh, uh, assessments for roads, libraries, parks, those, those are not property taxes, but they're billed on your property tax bill. Um, okay. The times that your property tax might go up is if you do new construction, or if you or you add somebody or delete somebody from the deed. So if you build an uh, an ADU or add a pool where there wasn't one before, then your assessment mm -hmm. will change. Um, do you come out to look at those things when you reassess, or do you just do it from the uh, the permits? Um, they sometimes they'll do a drive by. Sometimes they'll schedule appointments and they'll go go look at it, but. Uh, we still do need, uh, generally need to put eyeballs on it to see uh, what the uh, construction is. Um, okay. Another big issue that comes up all the time is um, that's really important for people to know is that what to do upon the death of a property owner. So if we're talking about residential okay. property, the law says that you need to notify my office within 150 days of the death of a property owner. If you don't do so, okay. that could in particular, if it's a home that you're inheriting, it could complicate your inheritance. and um, under a new law called Proposition 19, allows you to inherit your parents' property, uh, or your, in some cases your grandparents' property, but you have to fill out a form and uh, okay. Prop 19 form. And if you don't tell us one that there's been a death of a property owner by filing that form, and then filing the other form saying you're going to inherit the property, um, which will allow you to keep the low tax base, then you're going to get reassessed. You're going to get a supplemental bill. You're going to call out our office and be angry and say, "I thought I don't get reassessed when my parents die." And we're going to say, well, you, you don't unless if you do things right. And uh, but people, a lot of people just don't know what the right things are. And the way to find out information about that is on our website, which is assessor.lacounty.gov. And that was what I was about to ask you. Where can I point people to to find out more about you and to find out more about uh, what the assessor's office is doing and to get info? So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. My, my pleasure. It's really, really glad to have the opportunity to visit with you. I know that uh, your visitors were hoping for a riveting and exciting conversation and who better than the county property tax assessor. Uh, uh, you know, I thought you would be a fascinating person to have on for the conversation be specifically because we deal with your office pretty much every day of our lives in some way or another, and nobody knows how it really works. So I thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to me. And, um, you know, good luck with the election next year. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. With more than a year in on the relief valve, I've spoken with folks from all kinds of businesses and through their generous sharing, I've come to understand much more about the world around me. Now I'm greedy and I want to learn more all the time. And I'm also trying to figure out what the new normal is shaping up to be, which is ultimately a product of all of our visions combined. I'm always looking for people to talk with for the podcast. Everyone has interesting stories in their lives, and I want to know about what makes you who you are and what your vision for the future is. So if you're interested in sharing, drop me a line at jrock, J-R-O-C-K, at jnrprod, jnrprod.com, and let's chat.